Well, hey, good morning. How you doing? Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Now, I know some of you are looking at your notes going, that's different than what the title says. The title says we're going to be talking about sexuality. And then you're like, well, didn't we do that last week? And then you're like, oh, no, he's going to talk about it again. This is going to get really awkward. No, it was just a mistake in printing the notes. We're actually going to be in Matthew 6 um, this morning. We are not going to be talking about sexuality. I do not want this to be convicting. I do not want this to make you feel awkward or uneasy. We're going to talk on an easy topic this morning, money, okay? So we're going to be in Matthew 6. We're going to be talking about a Christian worldview as it relates to money. While you're turning there... Um, there's this weird kind of um, pilgrimage that happens every spring. It's usually the last week of April, the first week of May, but people will get in their cars, they'll take trains, they'll take planes, they'll take private jets, and they will descend on Omaha, Nebraska. Roughly about 40,000 people will go to Omaha, Nebraska on a Saturday for an annual meeting of Berkshire Hathaway Corporation. Now, that just seems weird to me that that many people would want to go to an annual meeting, but about 40,000 people will show up. Berkshire Hathaway, it's the most, probably the most successful investment company in our lifetime. And if you're a shareholder, you can go to this meeting. And if you go to the meeting, you're going to be in a crowd of about 40,000 people. People will line up to get seats in an auditorium. About 18,000 will sit in the auditorium. The rest can't even get into the room. It's an overflow situation. They will conduct business, and then the meeting gets fun. Because in the afternoon, this is just weird if you haven't been there, but about 18,000 people will sit in a stadium, and they will listen for three and a half hours to the founders of Berkshire Hathaway, a gentleman by the name of Warren Buffett. You guys recognize that name? He's one of the most successful investors of our lifetime. He's worth just over $100 billion is what they estimate. He's, one of the, he's considered the fifth richest man on the planet. He and his co-founder, his best friend, his partner in business, will talk for three and a half hours. What makes this interesting is Warren Buffett's 91 years old. Charlie Munger is 97 years old. And they will field questions from a full stadium. Sitting in front of them, they'll have a can of Coca-Cola. They'll nibble on peanut brittle. And they will ask, answer questions from the crowd. Questions related to investing, the company, the economy, politics, life, love, whatever they're asked. And what makes it interesting is these guys are, are way too old and way too successful to care about political correctness. They don't care about the cancel culture. So you never know exactly what's going to come out of their mouths. And uh, what's kind of revealed in that meeting is that um, men who have been successful in their investment careers are in high demand because the second thing is we care a lot about our money. And we're looking for guidance on how to handle our finances. Well, in this series, just this Christian worldview series, one of the places where a biblical view of money and how we are to steward that versus our world's view of money, they are um, in conflict. There is tension between those two positions. The big idea that I would give you this morning, or it's actually a big question if you're keeping notes, the question I'm going to keep asking is this, what does your money say about you? 
And, and I can't take you to Omaha. There's no peanut brittle up here on stage. I've been a wealth manager for over 30 years. I just don't think what I have to say has much value as it relates to money. What I want to do is, maybe it's not Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, but I want to introduce you to two of the greatest investment managers in the history of the world. The first is a guy that lived in Old Testament times. His name was Solomon. And what we know about Solomon is this, he was blessed with extraordinary wisdom by God and he was also blessed with extraordinary possessions. And Solomon has actually written two investment manuals. One of them is called Proverbs, the other is called Ecclesiastes on what our view and how we should steward the resources that God has entrusted to us. So one of our counselors this morning is going to be Solomon. The other one is a lesser known investment manager. He didn't have a huge portfolio. He um, was actually a laborer. It's Jesus. I would argue that Jesus is the greatest investment manager this world has ever known. And the things that these two men say are going to be in stark contrast to the wisdom that you would hear from guys sitting on a stage in Omaha, Nebraska, or what you would hear from other people in our culture on how we should invest our money. Now, a, a couple challenges when I talk on the subject of money, you need to know that there are over 2,350 verses in the Bible that deal with your possessions or your finances. So there's no way I can fit all of the biblical counsel into one message. The other problem that I have is when I say money, you hear giving and you immediately start to protect your wallets like there's an appeal coming because many of you have never heard a message on stewardship without a appeal, and I would just like to ease your mind for a second. There's no appeal coming with this message. This message is not about your giving. Our church's finances are healthy, and that's because of two things. One, your generosity, and secondly, we decided long before we ever met as a church that if we were going to be a Bible-teaching church, it would probably be a really good idea that we managed our finances according to biblical principles. You just thought that was kind of a good idea. And the combination of your generosity and the fact that we've managed the money that we've been entrusted to steward according to the principles that I'm going to lay out, that's put us in a very healthy position. So just like, you know, let go of your wallets. You don't have to clench your purse. There's no appeal coming. I think there is some things in God's word that if we understand what he says about money, how we should view our possessions, it actually leads to greater joy and greater happiness than the worldview that our culture holds. So let me just start by doing this, just a couple things about our culture and money. I want to just give you three words. These aren't in your notes. These are free. If you want to write them down, that's okay. One of the problems that we have as it relates to our world's view of money is just simply this, our currency is overvalued. Now, now, some of you guys, I'm not into this personally, but some of you might have like mugs, coffee mugs in your house or posters on your walls with motivational slogans or sayings. Is, is, like if any of you are into that, um, I'm happy for you. I'm just not. I'm actually into the exact opposite. I'm into demotivational slogans and things with sarcasm embedded in what they say. And, and if you're like me, if you're wired like me, if sarcasm is your love language, there's a website that you can go to. It's called despair.com. Not making this up. What a great name, right? And if you go to despair.com, what you'll find is not motivational slogans. You'll actually find demotivational slogans. And I went to, uh, to despair.com this week to look at what they had to say about money. 
and about wealth, it's interesting. Here's what they said about wealth. They said, all I ask for is a chance to prove that money can't buy happiness. I thought that was pretty good. Embedded as that is, just give me the chance. Like, like I want to prove for myself or the opportunity to prove for myself that that's wrong. As it relates to love, they said this. They said, money can't buy love, but it can buy exotic cars and luxury yachts. And once you've got those covered, you'll be fighting love off with a stick. I like that too. Okay? So, so what I would say, based off the sarcasm that's embedded in these slogans, is this. We know inherently that money can't buy love and happiness, but we're not necessarily against trying and testing that theory. Our culture does that all the time. Too often in our culture, and quite honestly, in the hearts of individuals throughout history, many have allowed money to become their identity, their security, their hope. And when we allow money to become our identity and our security and our hope, I would just like to point out to you that those are the three things that God desires to be in our lives. Our identity, our security, and our hope. Now, I taught last week at Spring Lake. Cal taught something similar here. But we put up this, this graph, and the idea in this was that when you embrace um, the cultural worldview, we talked about it being secular humanism, which removes God from our pursuit of happiness and self-fulfillment, it always leads to the same place. When God is removed, when we lose sight of a creator, we lose sight of design. When we lose sight of a designer or a creator, all of a sudden life becomes meaningless. It has no purpose. If there is no God, if life has no purpose, then there's no accountability. If we don't understand that we're accountable before God, we lose all fear of God. Proverbs, Solomon will write that uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we lose accountability and we lose fear of God, then it shouldn't surprise you that we lose wisdom and when we begin to approach things without a view of God, we don't bring a lot of wisdom to that equation and all of a sudden what we're confronted with is confusion and deep pain. This holds true as it relates to our view of sexuality, which we talked about last week, and it holds just as true as we consider the topic of money. So the first thing I would say is, too often we view our money, it's overvalued in our minds. Here's the second thing, it's overpursued. When I was preaching last night, I showed some stats on, on the fact that as we've moved as a culture, things have changed in our view of money, our pursuit of money. It's overpursued today. And there's data that would support that the younger generations have a different investment philosophy and style than traditional older investors. Currently, we have a shorter perspective as it relates to investments. We're willing to take greater risks. We want and demand quicker returns. In essence, we're fueled by our desire for instant gratification. This year, individuals have created uh, market moves that have actually stumped and confused traditional investment experts. <laughs> They've ran worthless stocks like GameStop and, and Bed Bath & Beyond. There's this whole phenomena and craze going on with cryptocurrencies that have left some scratching their heads. There is a huge uptick since this pandemic began in online gambling, people over-pursuing money. It's interesting, the last time our country went through a financial crisis, some of you, can you remember back to like 2008, 2009? 
Like, is that etched in anybody's brain? It is mine. But it was interesting, back in that financial crisis, we had a problem in our economy. All of a sudden, everyone at the same time quit spending because they were unsure about tomorrow. There was a lot of fear. There was crisis. People were in a panic. And when they panicked, they quit buying things. So our government was faced with, how do we pull out of this economic crisis? We have to stimulate demand. We had to get people buying again. Homes were falling in value because there was nobody out there buying homes. There was a demand problem. Fast forward to today, just over a decade later, we found ourselves, because of the pandemic, pandemic coming through another economic crisis, but it's the exact opposite. We don't have a problem with demand. We have a problem with supply. In essence, we're buying so much that we can't ship it fast enough. We can't move it quickly enough. It's interesting. Uh, Forbes magazine reported that since the pandemic began, in under two years, our demand for consumer durables as a country has increased 30%. 30% demand for consumer consumer durables. We're building decks, we're remodeling homes, we're buying new automobiles, we're buying new computers, technology. And by the way, shortage is everywhere, right? Supply chain's broken. You can't find enough people to work to fill the demand. And what makes that most amazing to me is, pre-pandemic, the United States was the most aggressive consumer of goods in the history of mankind. And we're up 30%. Money is overvalued, it is over-pursued, and here's the third thing, it's underperforming. Is our approach to money working? It's interesting, many in this room and our community around our country would say that money finances have left them feeling anxious, and this is supported by the data, it's supported by the polls. A company by the name of Next Advisor, they did two surveys, one uh, in June of 2020, just over a year ago, and they did one this past June right after the pandemic began and a year and three months into the pandemic to, to understand people's view of their finances. And what they found is in January of 2020, their survey revealed, as we were trying to figure out where this pandemic was going, how long it was gonna last, how it was gonna affect our economy, what were the long-term effects. In June 2020, the majority of respondents, 51%, were suffering from financial anxiety. Fast forward 12 months, they repeated the survey this past June. And guess what percent are struggling with financial anxiety? 51% again. The majority, it's unchanged. It's interesting, psychologists are struggling. They, they, Psychology Today has said that three out of four Americans identified money as the number one source of stress in their lives. We are one of the richest economies on the globe. Three out of four people worried about finances. In psychology circles, they're trying to figure out if they should name a new disorder. There's people for it, there's people that are against it, but that new disorder is money anxiety disorder. Should it be a recognized disorder in psychological circles? I don't know what they're gonna call it, money anxiety disorder, they'll probably call it mad. I'm just mad all the time. I got money anxiety disorder. But it's a thing. It's interesting, we're going to look at Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24, 
If I were to have you glance down to the following verses, starting in verse 25, Jesus first talks about money, and then what does he talk about next? Don't be anxious for anything. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Jesus, our financial advisor this morning, knew exactly what he was talking about. So in our culture, I would argue that money is overvalued, it's overpursued, and it's underperforming. It is not providing the security, happiness that people have sought. So with that being said, let me just give you three investment principles from Jesus. Hopefully you'll see these in our text. Here's the first one. Be a long-term investor. Be a long-term investor. Listen to Matthew 6, verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, now a couple things. I, I jumped into the middle of a sermon that started in Matthew 5. It'll run all the way to the end of Matthew 7. I jumped right into the middle of it in Matthew 6. But the, this is Jesus' first long sermon recorded in the Gospels. And he's already talking about money in his first sermon. Well, one of the things that I would like to point out to you that Jesus has a lot to say about money. As the disciples and the writers of the Gospels recorded the teachings of Jesus, the Gospels, basically 15% of what Jesus said in the Gospels was about money and possessions. So, so you understand what a big deal your money was to Jesus. He had more to say on the topic of money than he said on prayer, on faith, on heaven, and on hell combined. So, so why does Jesus spend all this time talking about money? And, and let me remind you, he wasn't a preacher that lived an affluent lifestyle. He had no home. He had nowhere to rest. He, he would die with a very limited portfolio. Why does Jesus have so much to say about money? Well, here's what he knows. Our money will reveal what has our hearts. Our, our view on money will affect and reflect our view of God. So Jesus begins with Matthew 6, verses 19, 24. He says, be a long-term investor. As the investment perspective of our culture gets shorter and shorter, quicker and quicker, faster, more risk, leaning towards instant gratification, Jesus is reminding us, hey, as you think about your investments, think long-term. And please hear me, when I say long-term, I'm saying eternity. He's saying, quit looking at the short-term effect of your decisions as it relates to your possessions. Start thinking about eternity. It's interesting. I'm going to flip over to Luke. I'll have these verses on the board. But in Luke 12, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is teaching. He's moving along. Crowds are following him. And here's what it records. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Okay, now a couple things. Does Jesus seem like happy with the guy's question? No, he seems a little perturbed that the guy would be talking to him about the conflict he has with his brother. The, the other thing is there's some irony there. Jesus says, who am I, your judge? Well, technically, yes. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He's the judge. 
But in the context here, this man approaches him. You've got to believe that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, about eternal things, and this guy wants him to settle a dispute like Jesus is moving around in his purpose of his ministry is to be some sort of Judge Judy. And the guy's like, hey, I got this thing going on with my brother. Can you speak into this? And Jesus is like, why are you bothering me with this? See, the concern was the guy's approaching Messiah to deal with his financial dispute, and he's missing the fact that the guy that he's talking to is the Son of God, the only one that can save. But rather than recognizing him as a Messiah, he just wants him to solve his financial dispute. And I will warn you that when our focus is short-term, when it's just on money, it can skew our perspective. Before I was at this church, I was at another church. This is 15 years ago. And at this church, one of the men in our church had a dispute with his brother about his parents' estate. The parents weren't able to take care of themselves. They'd had to move into assisted living. This man's brother was the trustee, and the brother was concerned that his brother who was the trustee wasn't handling his parents' finances well, and he wanted me to step in, me and another elder at that church, to mediate the dispute between brothers over their parents' estate. So we did. And uh, we sat down, we met with the two brothers, and the issue was that the one brother had distributed portions of the estate unequally. And I heard the charges laid out. The brother had distributed um, a rifle. He didn't want the rifle in the parents' home because they weren't living there anymore. He didn't think that was a good idea, so he gave that to one of the children. He had distributed a kitchen table. One of the grandkids needed a kitchen table that wasn't being used in this house because they weren't living there. He decided to let them use the kitchen table and a, um, and a teacup. I don't remember the details behind the teacup. A, a, a rifle, a shotgun, and a teacup. Together, they couldn't have been worth $500. Split brothers. About a week passed, we had another elders meeting, and the brother who had brought the complaint against his brother who was the trustee came to our elder meeting, and when he showed up at the elders meeting, he said, listen, I want to bring something into the discussion. I'd like to bring David with son up on sin charges. I said, what's the sin charges? Well, you bore false witness against me because you didn't side with me in my dispute with my brother. And I'm sitting there going, really? Rifle, key cup, <laughs> kitchen table. You've blown up your relationship with your family. You're going to blow up your relationship with the church because you've become so focused on what's temporary. And I would just tell you, be a long-term investor. Too much of our time, too much of our energy is focused on that isn't fair, that isn't right, I'm not getting my equal share Last week when we were talking about a Christian worldview on sexuality, we were in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, earlier in that same chapter, Paul is having to address a, an issue in the early church. There were men taking each other to court over financial issues within the church. And it's interesting what he writes there. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not? rather be defrauded. L listen, when our focus is on what's fair and what's equal, 
I'm telling you, it leads to a lot of stress, it leads to a lot of discontentment, and it leads to a critical spirit that robs our attention from following Jesus and our joy in knowing Jesus. So this man approaches Jesus, wants him to settle his estate. Look at what Jesus does next. He makes a point here, and it's an important point, important enough that he decides to illustrate it. He says in Luke 12, 15, Jesus says to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus, the greatest investment manager of all time, said, hey, be careful. Your life consists of more than just your possessions. That's a mic drop moment by Jesus. Like if you're looking for something to tattoo, some phrase, that ain't bad. Your life consists of more than your possessions. I would tattoo that. I'm just not into tattoos. I'm not into tattoos because I'm against tattoos. I'm pain avoidance, okay? (laughs) But that's a mic drop moment. Your life doesn't consist of just your possessions. Look what he says next. Luke 12, 16. Jesus told them a parable. He wants to drive this point. He says, a land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And the man said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, now just in those four verses, I want you to see what this man was saying, what Jesus was driving at. Four times in four verses, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times, my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. The language reveals ingrained selfishness. Listen, the issue isn't that he had a great harvest. The issue that Jesus is after is not his wealth. The fact that this farmer had a great harvest has way more to do with God's blessing than it does anything he did, if you understand farming. That, That harvest is contingent on proper rainfall, lack of pestilence, lack of disease. Like, God's in control of the harvest. The issue isn't that he had wealth. It's not even that he built bigger barns. There's so much bad teaching on this. Here's the problem. He viewed his treasure as his own. He failed to consider God. We don't see any gratefulness in the text. Just I, I, my, my. Then verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. If you are only a short-term investor, if you're only thinking about yourself in this lifetime, Jesus has a word for you. Did you see it in the text? Fool. That's what he calls somebody who looks at their money from a short-term perspective and never considers eternity. You might find this interesting. Right after he finishes that parable. Look what it says in Luke 12, 22. I don't have this on the screen. Just trust me on this. Next verse. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. (laughs) Matthew 6. I'm going to talk about money. Then we better talk about anxiousness. Luke 12. I'm going to talk about money. Then we better talk about anxiousness. I don't think this is just by happenstance. I think Jesus knew that too often our money leads to anxiety. In 2011, the Wall Street Journal reported on a study It was co-founded by the Gates Foundation. They paid for it, which interviewed 120 people with a net worth of 25 million or more. So the Wall Street Journal 
funded by the Gates Foundation, went out and interviewed 120 people, each worth at least $25 million. Here's what they found. Again, I quote, the respondents turn out to be a generally dissatisfied lot whose money has contributed to deep anxieties involving love, work, and family. Here's the point. Your anxiety and your focus on money will lead to anxieties in every aspect of your life. And don't miss the irony of this. Fast forward from 2011, 10 years, 2021, Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates, divorced. One of the richest couples in our country, one of the most successful stories of our generation. I would argue this, the correlation between riches and happiness is an illusion. Now understand, when you're going from starving without a roof over your head to having food and a place to stay, there's increased happiness. But when you get over the basic provisions of the basics of life to extended wealth, that correlation usually breaks down. More doesn't lead to more happiness. That's a lie our culture has fed us, that the world has taught us. Solomon, our other investment advisor, will chime in on this topic. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with its income. This also is vanity. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner to, but to see them with his own eyes? Listen to verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The eternal matters all around us. Make sure the majority of your attention is not on temporal things. Do not lose sight of eternity in the process of your day. Man, we lose a lot of time and we need to. We're called to provide for our families. Money is a thing. We need it to provide, to care for. A lot of our lives is given to work. We're talking about work next week. I would just say in that pursuit, don't lose sight of eternity. Be a long-term investor. Proverbs 11.4, again, Solomon, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Sadly, Warren Buffett, 91 years old, he's identified himself religiously as an agnostic. Don't know if there's a God, don't care. He seems like a man who is an analyst, a forward thinker, a planner. What does he believe happens next? He's 91. It's interesting this week. I have a nephew. He's 28, 29 years old. He got married probably five years ago. They have two kids, both under three. Uh, his name is Robert Pierre. Some of you will recognize that name. He preached this summer at Spring Lake um, in August. Gifted young pastor, gifted young preacher. Well, they've been dealing with some health issues in their family. And this last week, they were up at Mayo in Rochester, Minnesota, having some tests done on his wife, and uh, on Friday they got the news that his 27, 28-year-old wife has ALS. And uh, if you know what that is, you know what that is. And uh, that is a, um, a journey that you wouldn't wish on anyone. Robert was conveying the news to his friends and to his elders and to his family. And I've been talking to his dad who's supporting his son. His dad's one of my best friends. And... Um, the constant theme coming back is we're going to trust the Lord in this like we've trusted in everything else. 
By the way, this is a wealthy family. They've got plenty of resources. Resources don't help you in moments like this. And you find out where your hope is. You find out where your trust is. And both Robert and Scott have said to me in the last week, Scott is his father, have said, what do families do in moments like this if they don't have the Lord? Be a long-term investor. Here's the second thing. Hopefully you'll see this in the text. Minimize risk. Again, Matthew 19, he's saying, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. It contrasts that to making an investment in treasures in heaven where moths can't get at it, thieves can't steal, and rust will never destroy. You need to minimize risk. Jesus has just called the short-term investor a fool. And it's interesting if you contrast that statement with a statement pretty famous made by a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott who was killed in Ecuador trying to witness to some tribesmen there back in the 50s. He said this. It's an interesting quote. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. As an investor, even as I've managed money, one of the things that I've always got to do is, is kind of look at risk rewards and returns. And typically the greater risk, the greater potential there is for return, and the less risk that you take, the less opportunity there is for return. A biblical principle on investing is minimize risk. Here's the problem. When we think of minimizing risk, we think of things like savings accounts. I don't know where you all bank. Are you making a lot of money in your savings accounts? What is it, like 0.2%? Like, do the math on that. In like 80 years, it's going to be worth basically what it is like right now. Or, or treasury bonds. So when we think of minimizing risk, what we think about is we're not going to earn a lot of return. Well, I'm just going to argue that God's economy is different. It doesn't work that way. When we minimize risk, we actually earn a greater return in God's economy. Let me explain. Proverbs, again, Solomon is speaking. He says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessings will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Okay, do you want to minimize risk with your financial portfolio? You want to minimize risk. Be generous. If you want to put everything that you own at risk, be selfish. That's what Solomon just said. And in our minds, that's backwards. You would think that the guy who hoards, the guy who doesn't give anything away, that keeps everything to himself, at the end of the day, he would end up with more. And the guy who keeps giving his stuff away, he's going to end up with less. But the text says the exact opposite. From a financials perspective, what God is saying in my economy, the one who is generous is the one who ends up with more. Proverbs 3 verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. It's interesting, as it relates to generosity and to giving your money away, Malachi 3 says, God says this, it says, Thus says the Lord, test me in this. And see if you don't do the things that I've called you to do, the tithe and the different things, that I won't rain down blessing on you. Now, I've got to be careful because I'm sliding close to something that some would call the prosperity gospel, that if you give God a little, he's going to give you a lot in return. 
And please understand, your tithes or your offerings are not some stick and God is not some pinata. The idea that you're going to give a little bit of money to get more money in return, um, that's a Ponzi scheme. That's not our God. But what our God is saying is when we're generous with our finances and with our resources, when we use them, as the text said, to be a blessing, you get more back than you could ever give. And that's not always a financial return, but it's the hand of the Lord. It's God's blessing on your life, on your finances, on your family, on your health, and on your resources. That's what he's promising. Don't ever think that God is a mechanism to get you more of what you want. God wants to be the thing that you desire the most. And when that's your worldview, when that's the thing that is your primary pursuit, don't think God's not going to bless that. Here's a third thing. Be a long-term investor. Minimize risk. And here's the third. Your investments reveal who owns your heart. Matthew 6, 21, last phrase, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money's a test. And by the way, it's not just for the rich, it's for the poor as well. For all of us in this room, money is a test. It doesn't matter if you have a lot or a little. It's what you've set your affections on. So, You're saying, well, I don't think that's the case. I don't have a lot of money, so it's not a temptation. Hey, here's a question just by way of illustration. Who here has ever been on a diet? Okay. When you're on a diet, do you crave food more or less? More, right? So I've known people that have very little, but all of their affections and on what they want and what they could have, and I've seen people that have a ton, and all they do is focus on how they can get more. Money's a test no matter what your balance sheet says. Psalm 52, 7, now I've jumped. This isn't Solomon or Jesus anymore. This is David. He's Solomon's daddy. I think I know where Solomon gets it, but David says this. Psalm 52, 7, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Psalm 62, 10, this is a verse you should have memorized, maybe tattooed. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. The problem isn't that riches increase. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. It's not wrong for you to have stuff. It's a huge problem when your stuff has you. Your investments reveal what own your heart. Then he says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money is a test. Here's two ways that we fail that test. Here's the first, that our significance and our security is measured by our possessions. Funny thing happened this week. The two richest men in the world, uh, Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos, they got in a little Twitter exchange. And uh, they were mentioning that they've kind of switched positions this year based off stock prices in Amazon and stock prices in Tesla. But this week, um, I think Elon Musk was ahead of Jeff Bezos. And they asked Elon Musk, what's it like to be the richest man in the world? Did you hear some comments Jeff Bezos said? And Elon Musk just texted a picture of a silver medal in response to Jeff Bezos. (laughs) You're in second place, dude. I have 200 billion, you have 180 billion. Sucks to be you. <laughs> All of your significance tied? I mean, and we fail the test. Here's the second thing God's goodness is measured by our possessions. 
the gospel is loving Jesus because of what he did on the cross, not what he's put in your bank account. Don't ever believe that the way God has shown his love towards you and his grace towards you and his generosity towards you is simply financial. It's in the gift of his son and what he accomplished in our place on the cross. Okay, I got like three minutes. Here's four practical conclusions. We're going to move fast, okay? Here's the first one. Live on less than what you make. The best way that I can say this is choose your lifestyle. Don't let your income choose your lifestyle. Live on less than what you make. There, there's, as exercise is to a wonderful physique, which I can't give reference to, financial, fiscal exercise is living on less than what you make. Most of us live on more than what we make. As a country, we accrue debt because we live on more than what we make. And you're saying, that's how I live. How do I get to the point where I live on less than what I make? There's two ways to do that. Here's number one, make more. Here's another, spend less. Some of you are like, I can't make more. Great, problem solved. Spend less. Our our church every year, 90%... We budget the next year on 90% of what we brought in the prior year, living on less than what we've made. It's a spiritual discipline. Here's a second thing, steward with integrity. Steward with integrity. Do you cheat on taxes? Do you withhold tithes? Do you sell people stuff that they don't need? Do you say what needs to be said to get the deal? General observation I've made over time is people sometimes steal from their bosses and embezzle from their bosses. Do they typically do that when their boss is looking or not looking? Not looking, right? It would be kind of stupid to do it while the boss is watching. They do it when the boss isn't looking. Hey, question. When is God not looking? When does God not see? I'm going to let Solomon speak to this issue. He says in Proverbs 13, 11, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. The New King James Version, that same verse that says, Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. Proverbs 10, 22, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Proverbs 20, 17, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth will be full of gravel. Get the picture? Proverbs 21, 6, the getting of treasure by the lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. The new King James, the gatherings of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting fantasy for those who seek death. Proverbs 16, 11, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. In essence, what Solomon is saying is this. God sees, he knows, and he's the great balancer. Here's a third thing. Develop contentment. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 6, There is an evil I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, and yet God does not give him the power to to enjoy it. You can have whatever you want. If you don't have contentment, it's never enough. And please understand, contentment is not a destination, it is a journey. And if you travel and forget to bring with you contentment, you will never be satisfied no matter where your journey takes you or how many possessions that you accumulate. Contentment is a discipline that you develop. In church, if I were honest with you, I fight against discontentment every day. 
And you say, how can you do that? You have plenty of wealth, plenty of possessions. Contentment isn't just about what you have. It's how you face trials. It's how you face difficulties. It's how you face disappointments and disruptions. I fight for contentment every day. Contentment is the enjoyment of things that last, the enjoyment of things that matter, the resting in what I have, focusing on eternity, and the readiness to let enough be enough. Proverbs 15, 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble. Let's try that again. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Paul adds in in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then a last thing, practice gratitude. Ecclesiastes, Solomon again, I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly presides us with everything to enjoy. Get the last two words, enjoy. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the things that God's given to you, but learn to be generous and learn to be grateful. Another survey I read this week, it was just interesting. The people that are waiting on you in restaurants, increasingly since the pandemic, they don't like you. Did you know that? (laughs) Because we've grown increasingly rude and increasingly demanding, and increasingly frustrated. Hey, here's a plan. Be generous to the people that are waiting on you. Give them a nice tip. Thank them. Show gratitude. But that's not even what I'm stressing right now. As followers and believers in God, as followers of Jesus Christ with a biblical worldview, we should see all of this from a different perspective. We have the ability to look past the blessing, be it financial or health or other things in our lives, and not just be be grateful for the money or the blessing, but be grateful and show thanks to the one who gave it to us, right? Don't let your thankfulness reside simply on the blessing. Let it live on the giver of the blessing. I was the youngest of five kids. I grew up middle class. There wasn't a lot of extravagance. And at Christmas, I learned very quickly how to count how many gifts were under the tree, who was getting the most, who had the biggest packages, and I looked forward to Christmas morning to open to see what I got. And because I was the youngest, I always got the most. It was awesome. (laughs) I look at Christmas a little different. I look under the tree and I look at the gifts and I really don't care what I get. I love providing gifts to others. I love to see them open the gifts. I'm grateful for the relationships in the room more than any possessions that's that's contained in some wrapped box. We need to be a people that foster gratitude, gratefulness, and generosity because we have a God that's been generous to us. And if you're here today saying, I don't think he's been generous to me, you should see my financial struggles or you don't understand where I'm at, I may not, but here's what I do understand. I understand the cross. I understand a God that would give of his son to pay a price of a sin that we could never afford to repay. And yet he covered it and called us forgiven and called us healed 
and called us his own. Let that be our mindset. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. I thank you that you took the time to say so much about something that so easily steals our focus, steals our hearts, and robs our joy. Father, teach us to be a generous people reflecting a generous king. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we ask. Amen.